prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, director Steven Soderbergh returns to the crime genre with No Sudden Move. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. You might be experiencing a sense of deja vu. It's only been six months since Mr. Steven Soderbergh graced the podcast airwaves of Happy, Sad, Confused. But I live by a set of pretty easy to follow rules. And one of them is if you have the opportunity to chat with Steven Soderbergh, you take it. (laughs) Whether it's every six months or every six years, you take it. This is one of the most um, intelligent um, and fascinating filmmakers of our times. And the fact that I can now say that Steven Soderbergh is a regular guest of Happy, Sad, Confused, and I think in the foreseeable future uh, will be. He seems to enjoy coming on the podcast and has um, intimated that he is uh, game to come on uh, in the future. I am thrilled to no end because not only does he make great movies, but the conversations with him are... um, are deep and profound and interesting and, and can go in any number of directions. This one diverges into a, uh, a, uh, a dissection of, of assholes on the sets of films and why they get in the way and why we, why we put up with them. He actually had more about the subject to say than I thought he would, and I have a feeling if we wanted to spend the entire uh, 45 minutes or hour talking about that subject, we could have. But maybe that's for the next podcast. For this one, we're, uh, we're here to talk about his new film, The Excellent flick uh, No Sudden Move which stars in another another great ensemble of actors as Steven Soderbergh is apt to do. He gathers the best actors always and this one features some returning familiar faces to Steven Soderbergh's work including Benicio Del Toro and Don Cheadle but also includes new folks uh, to his world like our friend David Harbour and John Hamm um, the list is endless when I spoke to Steven it was just uh, the day after No Sudden Move had premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, hence that conversation about the premiere and premieres in general. And I'm thrilled to say that this one's getting great reviews. And uh, there was was a lot to catch up on, even in just the six months since we had chatted. Of course, the Oscars had had come and gone, and he had produced the Oscars, so we definitely talk about that, and he's open about that experience, the good and the bad. Um, He's also shot a new film, which sounds awesome. It stars uh, another happy, sad, confused veteran, Zoe Kravitz. I'm very excited about that film, which I knew very little about going in, but everything he told me intrigues me to no end. And um, yeah, like I said, like you, you get bang for your buck out of a conversation with Steven Soderbergh. So if you're here for uh, another geeky film conversation with one of our best, you've come to the right place. Um, other things to mention, tons of stuff going on. I did an interview with Vin Diesel that's on MTV News' uh, YouTube page. That was a wild ride. Uh, even a relatively short interview with Vin is always <laughs> entertaining to say the least. Uh, you should check that out if only to watch Vin Diesel uh, repeat my name for a solid minute at the outset of the conversation. I can't do it justice here, guys. It's Trust me, it's, it's worth checking out. Uh, also coming up, I chatted with uh, Florence Pugh and Scarlett Johansson for MTV. That conversation is fantastic. That's coming out soon. Uh, game night episodes over on the Happy, Sad, Confused Patreon page. There are a ton of them coming up. We've banked a few. Um, I think, well, here, I'll mention one that's already up that you should check out if you haven't already. It's with the aforementioned David Harbour, and it was so much fun. I went to David's apartment in New York, hung out with him in his apartment, and yes, in his bed for the better part of an hour, and (laughs) played some games. That sounds weird, but it's true. And um, he was delightful, and you should really check it out if you're into all things David Harbour. And if you're not, what's your problem? Um, We have a new Game Night episode that's going up. I think by the time you listen to this in the next 24 to 36 hours, I'm just going to say it. I don't even know if by the time you listen to this I've announced it yet. But hey, you're listening to the podcast. You deserve to know. It's with Chris Pratt. It's with Chris Pratt. Who doesn't love Chris Pratt? I do. He's amazing. Uh, His new film is The Tomorrow War on Amazon Prime, and Chris has always been so generous with me, and he is just a delight, and I I love geeking out with him, and um, this one was fantastic. We played a bunch of games. I got caught up on all things Jurassic World, um, uh, Tomorrow War, uh, his new series Terminal List, 
uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Yeah, there's a lot in there. So check that out. The full conversation, the full shenanigans over on the Patreon page. Again, that's patreon.com slash happy, sad, confused. Also about to announce a slew of upcoming guests on game night on the Patreon page that you will be very excited to hear. So stay tuned. I'm going to announce those really, really soon. Don't want to leave you guys hanging too long. Um, but suffice it to say, I'm happy and I think you will be too. Um, oh, one other thing I do want to mention. I got a really cool uh, uh, event coming up that I'm a part of uh, called WitcherCon. You might guess what WitcherCon is about. It's about the show The Witcher on Netflix. Very popular show based on the games and the books and starring our guy, Mr. Henry Cavill. I am so thrilled to say that Henry um, asked me to chat with him for WitcherCon. So I will be doing kind of the main big old chat with Superman himself, Sherlock Holmes himself, The Witcher himself, Henry Cavill. That's going to be July 9th, doing it for Henry and Netflix. Details to come on that, but um, they're putting together a really cool event for WitcherCon with a bunch of panels. And uh, thrilled to say again that it'll be me and Henry geeking out on all things Witcher and his love of fantasy. You will definitely want to check that out. So, yeah, I've been busy. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys are enjoying the summer, spending time with friends and family, getting a time to relax, um, and hopefully enjoying podcasts like this one. All right, let's get to the main event. I'm so thrilled again. Steven Soderbergh, returning guest to Happy, Sad, Confused. Check it out right now. Steven, thanks for re-entering the podcast twice in six months. I don't know uh, how I deserve this honor, but thank you, sir. What are we going to talk about now? What is possibly left to discuss in your <laughs> filmography? Um, it's been an eventful six months since we last uh, chatted. Uh, you have a new film that just premiered, uh, I think, just last night at Tribeca. Yeah. No Sudden Move. Congratulations. You produced uh, the Oscars. You, I mean, I think you might have shot another film in the yes. last six months. So I, I got a dog. So you you've beaten me in terms of updates on our. Well, that's that's lives. a that's a very serious commitment as a pet owner. I understand the implications <laughs> of making that choice. This is my first adult uh, ownership of another really um, being. Yes, took wow. me a while, but I, I, no regrets. I love Lucy. She, you might hear her at the door in this oh, conversation. Great. Um, so congratulations on the new film. I really dug it. Um, you had your premiere last night. Premieres are an odd, an odd thing. Give me a sense. Like, is there any way to judge a reception of a film having done this once or twice and gone to a bunch of premieres? Yeah, I, a, a little bit. Yeah, this was this was a really interesting setup. So it was outdoors down in Battery Park. Um, giant, really stunning LED screen. Terrific sound. You know, from a technical standpoint, you know, a, a really wonderful presentation and about 600, a little more than 600 people, you know, present. So it was a real, it was a thing. Um, and you did, you could feel the audience and hear the audience responding, which is something a lot of us haven't heard in a while. There was the, the real world aspect of it was interesting. There was some sort of... Um, car chase going on in the neighborhood. There was uh, multiple helicopters circling, but it was all, I just had to laugh because it was it was just part of the vibe of, uh, of the screening and it didn't drown anything out. It was just a sort of hyper aggressive Dolby, Dolby Atmos kind of uh, sonic intrusion. But it was really, especially by the end of the film after it, it was great because it got gradually darker and darker as the movie went on. And it felt like it was you were getting more enveloped in it as 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 it progressed. And and by the end of it. People were quiet, focused and and really responded when when it was over, when the when the credits came up. So that was, you know, premieres are typically not something um that are a ton of fun but this was this was such a this was such a special circumstance um even apart from the covid of it all that uh, i really enjoyed it uh, that so that was that was a new experience what was was the first premiere you ever attended one of your own was it for sex lies and videotape 
Yeah. Yeah. And what do you what do you remember about those first round of well, I take that Sundance back. and I remember Cam. I take that back. Technically, um a year before in 1988, I'd gotten tickets to see the new restored version of Lawrence of Arabia in LA where David Lean was present and spoke. That was so that was oh, kind wow. of a yeah, a thing. Uh, that was the first time I've been to something like that. So, uh, you know, but as far as my own thing, yeah, it's just, it's not, I, I don't, I, I guess you could ask other people who are in the same situation I'm in. I don't know how, if it's your film that you enjoy this. I just don't. Um, I guess if you've made something that is, just, you know, loved, just absolutely loved um, right out of the gate. And it's, and it's kind of, you know, unified in, in its uh, embrace of you and what you did. I, maybe that's gratifying. I guess it, it. Well, the nature of your films are a little bit, yeah. It's like Solaris doesn't lend itself to people jumping on their seats. No, they don't, they don't have a lot of, there aren't a lot of raised fist moments. <laughs> Uh, at the end of things that I make sometimes. Um, but uh, so they just, they, 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 they tend to be a very surreal um, disorienting experience. I, I mean, it would be interesting, you know, to, to do a, an fMRI while you're watching something, because I can tell you even last night as, as pleasant and, and unique as that circumstance was, the sensation that I had was that every frame was being projected for 10 seconds. Like it felt interminable. And this is not a movie that moves slowly, but I, I was, I, I, it went on forever for me. <laughs> well, thankfully you're alone. I think in that assessment, judging from the reaction, um, so. you, you, you again have formed um, as you have many times before an amazing ensemble of actors in this one. Some of them, um, you've worked before, notably people like uh, you know Don Cheadle and Benicio. Um, some new, uh, like uh, one of my favorites, Mr. David Harbour. Uh, I think John Hamm, perhaps, is the first time you've collaborated with him. Um, is there an alchemy to casting an ensemble? I mean, this one had a much different cast and a different iteration, I know. So how does it work? Like, does it, is it sort of, does one beget the other? I mean, how do you kind of figure out when you are casting an ensemble, how it's going to fit all together? Yeah, there's not, it, it's it's not something I think that can be really codified or or that you can come to with you know a, 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 an approach that that can, is on paper like it, right. it it certainly it certainly start in in this case you know it started with don it was it was it was developed out of a desire uh, to work with don again so it was written for him so he's first and that's you know, in terms of the alchemy you're describing or the algorithm that you're going to employ to to approach the casting, this is a very significant first step that is going to drive, you know, all the decisions that follow. Um, given that it is mostly a two-hander, you know, the Ronald casting now becomes crucial and you want somebody who's going to really parry with with Don in a in a compelling way, um, yeah. the fact that it made it easier. The fact that I that Benicio was a wonderful contrast to Don in a lot of different ways. I've worked with him, of course, and he and Don knew each other socially and had talked about trying to find something to do together. So that felt like something that was that was um, meant to be. And then David, you know, Carmen. Kuba, our casting director, did Stranger Things, so she's a huge fan of David's. And um, I've met David socially because he worked with Scott Frank, who's a very close friend of mine. Um, and that, that felt really good. Again, that triumvirate felt really interesting and distinctive. And so you're really, you're sort of going step by step. And then there are times when you think you have somebody and you don't have them for whatever yeah reason and our motto which is to date always proven to be true is you get who you're supposed to get 
Yeah. You can't spend time wondering like, well, why did they say no? Like, what was right. it like? I don't, and people do say no. I mean, people say no to me all the time. And, you know, the next, as soon as that happens, you know, I'm texting Carmen going, okay, who's, who are we going to now? Well, that seems to also follow your philosophy in approaching films. Like, I, I think we've talked before about like films that like kind of fell apart and you waste no time generally. Like if, 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 if Moneyball goes away, you figure out the next week, okay, what else is on the list? What can we get going? You're not one to sit and kind of mourn the loss. No, because it doesn't change anything. Um, yeah. And the only thing that's going to make you feel better is getting back to work. So, yeah. Um, but I've been, look, I've, I've, I've worked with less than a handful of casting directors. Um, I think my whole career, all of them are, 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 exceptional publicly acknowledged to be exceptional at what they do it it really it it really is you know its importance can't be sort of overstated because a casting mistake is fatal yeah you know I, I'm, I mean? I'm like curious. if yeah, you can absolutely. have a perfect cast and still fuck your movie up but if you've made a casting mistake there is no you may as well just pack up can, can we talk a little bit about sort of your evolution of working with actors? Because, you know, we've, we've referenced sex, lies, and videotape, and you're working generally like in your age group, like your contemporaries. And then with Kafka, your next film, you're working with folks like Jeremy Irons, Alec Guinness, which is a totally different kind of thing, as, as accomplished as James Spader, et cetera, are. Um, was the learning curve for you in working with different stripes of actors and different generations a steep one? Um, how long did it kind of figure, take for you to kind of feel totally comfortable working with every manner of actor? Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't um, that wasn't a problem, and I don't think I really, you know, thought about it too much. I do remember, I do remember having conversations with Jeremy Irons when we were making Kafka about Mike Nichols and and the sort of the specter of Mike Nichols and and his reputation for working with actors and how how you know philosophically intimidating those stories are you know and so I said you know you'd hear you know you hear these stories about Mike you've told him every actor's told him about and it's really true you know he just had a very very pronounced gift for metaphor and he just had a really wonderful way of getting you to think about something by considering this right. um, and saying it's like when, you know, and it was always yep. like a funny thing that you're like, oh yeah, it is like that. And, and I told <laughs> yep. him, I said, you know, I read a story like that and I'm, and I'm, I'm at a loss and Jeremy goes, well, let me tell you this, Stephen, those stories are all true. And he is the only person that can do that. So <laughs> yeah, don't, you don't hold just, yourself to that standard. Yeah, yeah just exactly. he goes, just just do what you're doing. He goes, don't you can't be Mike. He's Mike, and and that was very helpful. Um, and later, as as I became friendly with Mike, uh, <laughs> the truth of that was borne out. It's like, yeah, he's Mike. There's no other Mike. <laughs> he comes up on this podcast almost more than any, any other filmmaker, yeah. and I, I, I greatly enjoyed the uh, the biography this last year by Mark Harrison about you. But anyway, we'll, maybe we'll come back around to Mike. I'm always fascinated by like the way the way different filmmakers uh, uh, conduct their sets, and kind of um, and certainly this production is a, a unique situation because you did make it in the in the crazy year of COVID, but. Even in talking to David casually recently, David Harbour, I mean, he basically kind of intimated that like it was a pretty kind of like civil way you run a set. It's not like 16 hour days. It's like yeah. it's a huge even in this experience. Um, do you are you a believer that like the way a production is mounted is reflected in the finished product, like the energy of making a film comes out in the end? I think it can. I don't think it always does, but I think it can. And the fact that it can means that it should be taken seriously and that you right. should really consider what the vibe is within the production about what we're all doing. I mean, that, that alone, it, the possibility that it can affect what's going to be on screen is, is, is worth uh, some serious consideration. So as a result, 
you know, what, what I'm aiming for on, in all areas and at every echelon is just a certain efficiency and, and focus on the thing that we are making. And so, you know, I was on a panel the other day about toxic work environments and abusive bosses and what to do about that and how to handle it. And, and my feeling is to, is, to, is to really bring home to everyone, especially people who finance projects that it's inefficient. It's just inefficient at the end of the day. If you have people whose psychic real estate is being chewed up by some asshole, this is, this is an inefficiency that when you multiply it out, really affects the product because people are yeah. not focused on what they're supposed to be focused on. They're not thinking about the thing. And that means they're not going to be as creative. They're not going to be as quick. Like it's, uh, I think, I think I could make a very good case that, you know, having an asshole in any position, but especially in a position of power is, is bad business. It's just bad business. It's funny, this comes up, I mean, has come up a lot in my conversations with filmmakers and actors, especially it just occurs to me, like the, de the depth of talent in your field is pretty deep. Like there's all, like if we apply to actors, for instance, like sure there are the unicorns, but there are enough great actors that aren't assholes that why bother with the assholes? Like have you- Oh, absolutely. Have you support and that exists, you're right. It exists in every category that you, you uh, choose. And so given that fact, um, yeah, why would, you, why would you go there? Now, what, what I think we're all trying to grapple with now is how, how do we identify these people? Um, I mean, most, most everybody knows who they are, but how do, how do we put them on notice, so to speak? How do we let them know that we're essentially, we're, we're yellow carding them. We're giving them a yellow card going, yeah, uh, see, here's the thing. General vibe is that like you're being an asshole. Um, and so how do you do that? What's the, what's the mechanism for identification? Then what is the mechanism for, you know, repeated offenses? Like what somebody who's just an unrepentant asshole, like what's, what's the move here? And there are these people, believe me. I mean, there was a notorious producer uh, when I was vice president of the DGA, who we essentially tried to intervene with, we would meet with this person to say, this has gotten just such a, a, a place and we've gotten so many complaints and the allegations are so alarming that we got to come here and talk to you to, you know, ask for you to stop abusing these directors. Um, yeah. And this person said, don't care. I run it the way I run it. And it's my show. And they, they have no interest in engaging in this conversation at all. And they're what still, the out, there. Them? They're still, they're out, there. still like, out there doing fine. Great. So, <laughs> you know, you've, so again, so what is the, let's say you can, we can, we can yellow card some people, you know, what, what do you, if they keep going, like, what do you do? How do you, Again, how do you how do you convince somebody, the studio, the person paying the bills on, on that salary to go? Or, I guess the question we really have to ask ourselves is. Can we discriminate against assholes? Is is this the only context in which discrimination is appropriate <laughs> is when somebody is an unrepentant asshole? with let, let's discuss <laughs> my my gut goes in the positive direction for that um, well, it would be it's an interesting social question because their their destructive power is so disproportionate to the power of someone who's a good person and a, and a trustworthy person you know it's it's it takes a lot of coordinated energy on the part of a lot of open-hearted people to create a vibe on a movie that's really positive and creative and successful and efficient. One asshole and you are <laughs> back to square one yeah. every day.
Like you're just, and so it's, it's a problem in this context. It's a problem in the world, you know, is the, is the disproportionate destructive power of assholes. There's this guy, I don't know if you know this book, Assholes, a Theory by Aaron James. I don't. Okay. Now I'm gonna Somebody sat that. down and said, you know, I've noticed this walking around in the world, this specific issue that there is such a thing that we can <laughs> view this as like a, a in sociological terms, uh, you know, a, a term of art, uh, the asshole. And <laughs> and what they do to the rest of us, like what what impact they have on the rest of us. And it's a really, to me, uh, it's a really key question for us to sort out like what do we do with people that just can't be cool and and are are just toxic assholes it's uh it's a thing <laughs> i love that this is the first rabbit hole we fell down but let's let's talk about the non-assholes that you, you worked with again on, on this one um david was telling me that you would have a movie night maybe i don't know if it was a weekly thing is that something is that a tradition for you on your sets and 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 do you select films that are reflective at all of the film are you showing like asphalt jungle or neo-noir films or is it just it, like, it yeah, can whatever be, i feel like more often than they they tend to run to no i don't do it all the time this was sort of a special circumstance we were in this we took over this hotel in detroit and we were in a bubble and we couldn't go out and so it, it really was born just out of a desire to to you know not feel uh caged um and it was a very small group just you know three or four people um and in this case, they 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 were running more toward um, ridiculous melodrama and and kind of camp. So I think probably the most you know the most spirited uh, of the nights that we had a screening the where David was in attendance was the Oscar, uh, the nineteen sixty six Stephen Boyd, you know. <laughs> If you haven't seen this, stop listening to this <laughs> podcast and and go find it because it is just it is just both side splitting and mind blowing in in its insanity um, and especially if you have a group of people <laughs> that 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 work in the film industry to watch this is uh, man my face hurt. At the end of it, I mean, we we laugh so hard uh, that I, I look like I'd, I've been punched. Um, <laughs> but you know, there there's I have my own sort of screening program that's ongoing as I'm preparing and as I'm shooting of things that I'm watching just to to be inspired by or to steal from. Um, and that how that, did it work for, that changes how did it work from film for this to film. One? I mean, for this one in particular, I'm, I'm curious because like, you know, this is takes place in 54 in Detroit and you've certainly, you've approached period works in different ways. I mean, the most notable kind of daring um, movie you made was with, with Good German, where you made basically a movie of that era, like a lost yeah. film in many respects of that era. So like, talk to me a little bit about the approach because like when you read a script, a lot of it is probably self-evident from the script, but there's still a hundred different ways to skin a cat. Like, do you know when you read Ed Solomon's script, like this is the clear way to approach this or are there uh, some big choices to be made? Well, I think the first, you know, the first choice is just the, the visual grammar of the film. So you just start breaking that down. You start with format. What, what format do I want to shoot in? So, you know, in something like, Unsane, we ended up with a format that's almost a square, basically. Um, and sometimes you feel like, okay, 185, or you know, in the case of HD 178, kind of works for this. Um, and then there are times where you go, okay, I want to, I want to shoot anamorphic, or I, I want to, I want a 240 ratio, uh, whether I achieve it with a spherical lens or an anamorphic lens. Um, and then, then you start talking about the rules of movement and composition. Like, what am I, what am I allowed to do? Like, is it an, is the aesthetic of the movie objective or is it more subjective? Uh, mm -hmm. Because if it's, if, if it's either one of those, then the rules of movement and composition are different potentially. Um, black and white and color obviously is a big choice. Then, 
Then you're talking about color, tonality. Um, you know, in, in, in this case, I think the biggest influence were visually um, would probably be influences. These two Nicholas Ray films, uh, Rebel Without a Cause and Bigger Than Life. Um, Cinemascope, you know, saturated, high contrast imagery, you know, really stark, bold compositions. Like that's, that's what I was thinking of uh, as a starting point um, yeah. for No Sudden Move with the understanding that the equipment that I have now enables me to put the lens in places that would have been harder for them to place the lens and move the camera in a way that it would have been very, very difficult for them to move a large camera back then. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to like turbocharge. I'm, I'm trying to take what I understood as a certain set of rules that let's say Nicholas Ray was employing and just really inject them with the the modern technical capability that we have now, but but retain the spirit of it. Right. Like, like, like many of your films, um, I know you basically had a cut of this film immediately after you shot. Like, and, yeah. um, and that's, yeah, you're editing as you go. You have, it's more than assembly. It sounds like it's like a, it's an actual cut of the film. Um, your leading man in this, that Cheadle himself told me once about, I think the film he directed, it was like the most demoralizing moment of his life was the first cut, watching the first cut of his film. So, <laughs> so clearly you've, been through that rabbit hole you figured out a way so that you are whether you're detached or you're doing enough work as you go so that it isn't a demoralizing moment for you um or or is it still when you're seeing kind of the first rough pass at a film like how do you get to that point where you're like able to to work in that fashion well you know until until technology advanced to the point where you could turn footage around quickly uh, i was in i was in I think the same situation that Don found himself in on his on miles ahead. So for instance, Sex Lies, Kafka, King of the Hill, not a single hour of editing took place until we were done shooting. That's right. unthinkable to me now. And I think those films suffered for it. I think any, any film I made in which I wasn't able to cut as I was going um, suffered. Because what happens now is the ability to iterate and recalibrate that quickly, just for someone like me who likes to work the way I like to work, you just can't put a price on that. The ability to see it in something that's very much approximating its, its final form. I've got score, I've got sound effects, I've got, I can, I can adjust the color, you know, if I want to. I mean, I can make it look pretty finished that night. And if I feel like that scene, that thing that we did today is lacking, then I'm on the phone to right. the first AD and the producer going, okay, first up tomorrow, we're redoing this. We need more shots of that. Like we're, we're you know, we hit the ground the next day, making the thing better that we shot the day before. And so that means, yes, when I get to the end of it and I plug in the last day's footage, we have, you know, a fairly polished first cut. And again, the fact that we have that then means we can start that conversation of do we need to reshoot something? Do we need more scenes? Like everything just moves up and you're saving time, you're saving money. You know, um, it's really, uh, the, the benefits to me are just very, very clear. And, and I try to take advantage of them. Have you ever test screened your your films back in the oh, day? Sure. Is that ever helpful? It 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 is helpful. It can be helpful. It's if you're making a comedy, it's it's it, you really have to do it. Like if you're if you're if 400 people are not laughing, then you really need to know that uh, as quickly as possible. With dramas, it's a little different, um, and and everybody's got stories of movies that tested poorly and did well, movies that tested well and did poorly. Um, the first Magic Mike tested in the 60s, like a 63, which is not a good score. Yeah. And the second one tested an 89. Um, and so, you know, what do you, all three Oceans films tested identically, like identically. So, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a tool, but it shouldn't be a hammer. Like I, I, I know a lot of studios use it to hammer on filmmakers, but it's, it's not precise. Um, and like I said, if, especially if you're making a drama, um, people react to dramas in very different ways and, and it's hard to tell. I, I'd say comedies, you have to screen a comedy. Did, um, we, we talked a little bit about Mike Nichols earlier and it brings up one of the topics I wanted to bring up with you, which is um, mentors. You've mentored other filmmakers. You, you were an important um, advocate for no less than the Russo brothers and Christopher Nolan. Um, and I'm curious for you, like in the wake of Sex, Lies and Videotape, did filmmakers come out and kind of invite you to the, the inner sanctum? <laughs> did you have people that you immediately looked to and could lean on back then? Um, there were some people that reached out just to ask, you know, what do you want, what do, what do you want to do? Um, yeah. And is there, it's kind of a version of the conversations I have with young filmmakers, which is, what do you want to do? And is there anything I can do to help? Um, and so- which in many ways is the most important conversation to have. Really, yeah, it's certainly, yeah, that's a call that you're always happy to get. And, and in the case of Sex Lies, um, Sidney Pollack was the first person to call me uh, or reach out. And uh, I was very, very happy to go and talk to Sidney Pollack. And we started working on a project. It was actually uh, an adaptation of a book called The Last Ship um, that we worked on for a couple of years. And then the, after the Berlin Wall fell, it, it kind of became less relevant. And then it turned out times changed and it became more relevant. It became a TV show of, of, of multiple seasons uh, that Michael Bay was involved right. with as a producer. So, um, yeah, he was he was probably the most significant of the people that that reached out and that I really followed up with. Um, and then, you know, since then, it's all been very serendipitous in my case. Uh, I think the first thing I was involved with as a producer with my name on it was Suture, uh, the Siegel and McGeehy film um, from 1993. And then uh, the day trippers right. followed after that, and then Pleasantville, and, yeah. I, and and the producing part of my life became a little more active. And then Section Eight happened, and then it got really active. Um, is is it true that you put in a call to Feige when they were when the Russos were going up for? Well, they reached out to me. The guys reached out to me and just said, "Would you or, or would you be willing to have a conversation with him to to vouch for us?" Um, and I said, well, I only have one question. I mean, I knew them, I knew them well enough that I could vouch for them as like people and filmmakers. But what I wanted to know was, right, why are you why are you doing this movie? Why do you want to do this movie? Because if they'd said, seems like a good career move, or our representatives think it's a really good career move, I would have a certain response to that. Their response was we are huge comic book fans. We have a gigantic comic book collection. We've always collected comics and this is our dream job. And I said, that's what I wanted to know. And I spoke with Kevin and just said, I think you're going to love these guys. They're, they're good guys. They're really hard workers. You know, they're nice. Um, I, you know, they get my full support. And so that's, I'm, that's very gratifying when you're just able to, to help something happen. You know what I mean? And, and to see what the, I'm not at all, they're probably more surprised by what's happened to them by, you know, getting into that universe than I am. I'm not surprised. I wasn't right. surprised at all. I'm like, these guys, these guys work hard. Like they're, they're self-starters. Like if they're given this opportunity, they they're going to run this thing down. So I wasn't surprised at all. I'm really happy for them. They've, uh, yeah, they've, uh, I know you've gone record with me and others as, you know, like for, you didn't grow up with comic books. It's not necessarily your kind of thing, but it's funny to, to think, I know they've cited Out of Sight as one of the big influences, for instance, on uh, Infinity War. <laughs> so <laughs> your, your influence, okay. your influence has made it into some comic book movies. Right. Well, they're like going to they're, they're gonna have to generate a, uh, an essay that, that proves... <laughs> 
um, explains that, okay. that that was an influence, but uh, I'll leave that to them. <laughs> you, you have one of my favorite quotes about another film ever, um, which is about Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> in which you basically said, I have it here somewhere, but um, among other things you said, I don't understand two things. I don't understand how they're not still shooting that film. And I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. <laughs> <laughs> which really speaks to, again, Mike Nichols comes up a lot and Mad Max Fury Road comes up a lot yeah. on this podcast. That is just an example of, to anybody that knows anything um, about film, they agree with you. It's like, how did he make that magic happen? When you, when you watch that, when you watch that, give me a sense of what was going on in your brain. What did, did you understand? Did you relate to it in any way? Or did it feel like an alien had made this, this film? A, a little bit of both. I just watched it again, actually. I, I was, I had a brief vacation uh, a week ago and it was one of the movies that we brought to watch. Um, so I got to, I got to watch it, you know, and, and think about that. It's kind of a combination of everything. I mean, it's just, you know, none of those shots are simple and they're all, and they're all new. Like he, it's just one new difficult shot after another. And just the stamina, the physical stamina, the psychological stamina to just sit, to, to keep grinding this thing out shot by shot day after day, month after month, never waver in your commitment to the quality of that shot or whether or not you need that shot. Like it's just, it's, it's just, I can't wrap my head around it. I mean, I couldn't have directed 10 seconds of that. Like it's just, it, it really just, I would say it makes my head hurt, except that's not fair because it's, it's incredibly pleasurable for me right. to see somebody operating at that level. Um, and then you just add everything else on top of it. We're not just talking about the, the pure, you know, staging and, and editing aspects of what he's doing. There's the script, there's the cast, there's the, you know, there's every, the costumes, you know, like everything, just the world, you know, that he's created, like everything, everything is just, so completely unified and so completely the best version of itself. Like it's, it's just kind of astonishing. And yeah, everybody that I know that I respect, um, not just that film, but, but, but knows that George Miller is George Miller. Like this, this, yeah. this is somebody that you, it's somebody you have to reckon with, I guess. If, if you yeah. care, if you're a director that cares about, the camera at all he is one of these people that you have to reckon with yeah um since we last spoke uh you shot a film i mentioned you also produced the oscars you are a very intelligent man sir you know that producing the oscars is like hosting the oscars it's basically a no-win situation um did you know that going in did you feel oh, yeah. that in your heart yeah. like yeah. and no and it's, so it's, it's yeah look trashing the oscars is is rolling a ball downhill um, that's, that's fine. We knew that. And we, we, we were focused on, you know, trying to create something that was distinctive, um, yeah. and that was personal, um, and emotional if possible. Um, so no, I didn't worry about any of that. And I didn't, I don't read about things, uh, anything, anything that has my name in it. Um, I will, I don't click on or turn to, so I didn't have to worry about that. I was very focused on, <laughs> a you know coming up with ideas conceptually about how to do it and then discussions about how to execute um the logistics of keeping people safe and getting people there this was this was crazy it was just crazy um and <laughs> that, that we were able to, that we were Sorry, able to do it and have not a single positive case uh was was remarkable right, so right. Um, I really, and I have to say, I said, I said to my wife after, I said, you know what, doing it was worth the feeling the week after of not having to do it. <laughs> I feel so good right now 
that I don't have to do it this week. Right. It yeah. was worth doing it. Like I'm, uh, I'm ecstatic that I don't have to do it this week. I don't know if I follow that logic. I'm going to become, I don't know. That's I'm just telling you. That's how I felt. I'm going to become addicted to heroin. It's going to be horrible, but when I'm out, I'm going to feel so good and clean. Well, I don't know. I mean, the good news was that the, you know, the Academy was great to deal with. The network turned out to be great to deal with uh, all of the talent. Like it wasn't the, 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 the challenges uh, I think were just literally logistical and, yeah. and having enough hours and, and, and people to, to execute the thing. Like that was, that, that was all that we were pushing up against. You know what I mean? We, we didn't creatively, we were given free reign to do whatever we wanted. And it was really just coming up with an idea and then can it be done? Can it be done with this amount of money? Can it be done in this period of time? Like that's what we were dealing with. What was on the list that couldn't be done? There must've been a few ideas that just logistically time Three cities, three full cities, three full venues. London, New York, uh, LA, like where you have people, hosts in different, like three full on separate locations. Couldn't do it, couldn't afford it in the logistics. Then we went down to two, we went, we took out New York, then it was gonna be LA, London. And then it became clear, they went into another, again, this shit was changing every two days because of COVID. They went into another, like worse lockdown than they were. We're like, okay, London's off. We're just going to do a thing where we have some of the nominees in a theater. You know, we're not going to do a full on event. Like we, we were, we had to change course so many times. Um, but I'm just, is, is for me, is, is at the conclusion of that opening shot of Regina King coming into Union Station and standing there and seeing a room full of people not wearing masks. Um, at that point, it didn't matter to me what happened. Uh, that that we had, yeah. we had, I felt, okay, we made it. We made it and now it's out of our hands. Look, last time we chatted about your, your Kafka nightmare involving Paul Hogan, to me, that's the only mistake you made is not bringing Paul back as an Oscar host because lest you Wesley forget, he was once a host of the Oscars. That's true, but he's in Australia and Australia, you know, during that period, that was still traveling back and forth from Australia was a problem. So that was the whole uh, thing. You're, you're right. We were, we were, we were not very forward thinking uh, in reaching out to Paul. Um, the uh, uh, Kimmy, is that how I'm pronouncing yes. the, the new film? Yeah. Um, Zoe Kravitz, uh, what do I, what, what can I know? What should I know? This, so from what I understand, this actually takes place. This is the film you shot recently. Yeah. And this actually does, is a contemporaneous film. This takes place yeah. is, is COVID an aspect of the story? Absolutely. Um, or the aftermath of it is, is, uh, an aspect of the story. And also, you know, so there's that because it ties into certain, um, psychological issues that our, our lead character is, is, battling and um overlaid is a, a very contemporary you know zeitgeisty issue of you know giant tech companies who have a lot of listening devices and a lot of homes and what are they picking up and what if you worked for one of these companies analyzing streams that have been flagged for some reason or another that the that the voice you know uh recognition software is is there's some aspect of this recording that it doesn't understand or has a question about and it gets kicked to a human analyst to listen to it so that they can go like oh that's a slang term that this thing hasn't heard of now i got to load it into the system so that the software can now recognize you know this so this is what this person's job is um, and you know, she hears something that sounds not cool. And sounds like she, uh, the 2021 version of the conversation. A yeah, bit. pretty much. Um, and a little bit of rear window, um, and a little bit of panic room. So it's all my favorite stuff. So this was, this was an idea that David Kep, uh, floated to me a couple years ago. And, and I, I, that was a, my philosophy when people approach you with things is if it's not hell yeah, it's a no. This is, this was a hell yeah. Like, 
I, I wanted him I, at that at the point he told me the story. I wanted him to start immediately, um, but he eventually got around to it. <laughs> um, sex wise, the sequel. Where are we at? I know you're working on the script. Last we spoke, are you? I need to, to do. It needs a new draft because um, I wrote I wrote one draft very quickly, um, so it needs to be revisited um, from a writing standpoint. And then it's just uh, scheduling, like things things pop up and, and take on critical mass faster than other things. The, the good news is in that regard, the, the theme that's explored in that movie is not going away. Right. Um, and and there's, no, there's no hurry. I'd rather it be done right than soon, um, but I wanna do it. It's, 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 it all was generated out of a desire to address a topic um, that I haven't found a way to, to, to really address yet. And for whatever reason, I connected it with these two sisters 30 years later. Um, and so uh, that was just a, a kind of random uh, marriage of, of two things that I think is, is close to, to being realized and and is different enough at the same time to for, for people to understand when they're watching it why I wanted to do it. Well, we've waited thirty years. I'm I'm content to wait a, a little longer, sir. Yeah. Uh, look at that. We we found forty five minutes more of, of conversation to find. That does not surprise me in the least. Uh, congratulations on the new film, No Sudden Move. Uh, check it out, guys. And um, Stephen, hopefully, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're going to shoot three more movies in the next year, and we'll just keep talking like this until we run out of things to say. I'm happy to. That went really fast. Thank you, sir, as always. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>